0: welcome back to the show today we are speaking with doug knoll about unlocking the hidden genius of your emotions and this is such an unbelievable episode doug is a lawyer turned peacemaker author speaker trainer and visionary he left his successful career as a trial lawyer to become a peacemaker his calling is to serve humanity and he executes his calling at so many levels He is an award-winning author, teacher, trainer, and highly experienced mediator. Doug's work carries him from international work to helping people resolve deep interpersonal and ideological conflicts to training life inmates to be peacemakers and mediators in maximum security prisons. Doug is truly the epitome of the purpose of the show, Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. And he shares his story of overcoming so many challenges in his life, including being born nearly deaf, nearly blind, crippled with two club feet, and left-handed at a time when it wasn't okay to be left-handed. At an early age, he decided to overcome and not let these disabilities define him, He turned to being a peacemaker, and what he did with this is he is a co-founder of Prison of Peace. It's a program to train murderers in maximum security prisons how to be peacemakers and mediators in their prison communities. This conversation absolutely blows me away. And there's so much here about understanding your emotions and understanding how it's really like where our hidden genius is. One of the ways that Doug does this is by teaching people how to listen to others, improving communication skills. In this episode, you will learn a super power, how to listen to others and really connect with them in order to transform their lives and their businesses it's it's such a powerful episode welcome to the show today doug it's so great to meet you and have this conversation
1: Marsha, it's uh early in the morning here in california and i'm really excited to have a conversation with you
0: oh i love okay first off you had me at california And second, I mean, I just love, I love that you wanted to jump in and do this because there are so many parts to your story that I want to dive into, but let's just start with first, if you don't mind giving just a very brief intro as to who you are, because there's so many parts to it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, a lot (laughs) happens in 72 years. Um, well, briefly, I'm a lawyer turned peacemaker. Uh, I was a practicing lawyer, civil trial lawyer for 22 years and mid-career went back to school and earned my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies and left a 10 million dollar law practice to become a peacemaker and mediator in 2000. And that's sort of that's the the very short readers digest introductory version of who I am and what I do.
0: I okay. So let's just start there because I love this. So you left. Was it? It was in 2000. You right. decided that you wanted to leave a very successful law practice and go into peacemaking, conflict resolution. Right. What made you want to make that leap?
1: Well, it had nothing. It had a lot to do with the law, but but the the journey was a long one. I started studying the martial arts in. 1984 mm-hmm. and earned my second degree black belt when I turned 40 in 1990. And then my teacher fired me. <laughs> you're too arrogant. You're a lawyer, secondary black belt. You know, you're going to hurt somebody. Go learn Tai Chi before I teach you anything else. Wow. And that was a death sentence because you never really master Tai Chi. Mm-mm. Well, Tai Chi has two paradoxes. Uh, the first is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second paradox is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Softer be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. And Tai Chi is the oldest of all martial arts. All martial arts come from Tai Chi. And Tai Chi is also extremely deadly. Um, I studied it as a martial art, not as a contemplative practice. And so those paradoxes took a while to soak into me. But one day, several years later, I was in the courtroom trying a case, cross-examining somebody, and the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? Mm. And after that trial, I had a vacation plan to run a whitewater trip on in Idaho, and spent ten days on the main salmon with friends, just thinking about how many people I'd served as a trial lawyer, and could only count five people in twenty-two years that I'd really helped. I'd won a lot of cases, but how many people really came out better off than going in? And I said that I'm not going to do this for another thirty years. But I didn't know what I was going to do. And so after the trip, I was driving down out of the mountains to my office, and. Heard a public service announcement for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies, offered at Fresno Pacific University, which is one of the West Coast Mennonite universities, and I it caught my attention and I checked it out. I had a little bit of trepidation about going to a you know a Mennonite university, but I I was convinced by the, the by the curriculum and by the people that uh, were in charge that I, it would really be beneficial, and it was. It completely changed my life. Um, so I spent three years as a full time graduate student. Again, <laughs> um, I was a three quarters time law professor at our local law school, and I was a full time trial lawyer, and I did that from about ninety seven to two thousand one. And, and then I left, but I left the firm in two thousand. In two thousand, my partners and I couldn't agree on mm-hmm. what I was going to do. They hated the idea of me becoming a peacemaker because I was the second largest earning partner in the firm and they just didn't like to see the golden goose go away. So I walked out, I gave gave a week's notice and walked out. Left 10 wow.
0: Yeah, and I mean, they were probably not interested in you doing this because that's that affects the partnership, affects business, affects money, affects all these pieces, right? Um, that's just, it's one thing to think, oh, I don't love what I'm doing. It's another to make a the steps in place. And it sounds almost like it was very clear, straightforward for you that, no, this is this has to change. Was there ever any moments where you had doubts or was it like, nope, we're doing this?
1: Best decision I ever made.
0: See, this is just, and how much time as humans, we're going to get into emotions later, but how much time as, as humans do we spend thinking, right? Thinking not
1: and not Less than 2% of our waking time is spent actually thinking Cog, you know, using, using critical thinking skills or quantitative analysis, less than 2% of a day, less than two, for most people, not at all.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you're, if you're in a thinking business, you might, you might be think you might be using your thinking for three or four hours a day. It's exhausting. You can't do it for, even as a lawyer, you know, most of my day wasn't spent thinking most mm-hmm. of my day was, was spent doing other things. Mm-hmm. The hard thinking, the legal research, the thinking, the anal- analysis, writing briefs that, you know, there was that that was part of the practice, but it wasn't even for a lawyer, you're not doing this all day long.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Physically, physiologically, it's impossible.
0: No, but I think that that's a great thing and a great message to share because so many people do think that they're just, well, I'm going to go and think about it. I'm going to go and think about it. And I'm like,
1: <laughs> they don't.
0: <laughs> just say no. Like, literally, it, that's actually my cue for me. If I'm like, okay, I have to go think about it, my answer is like, not right now. It's just my. No, it's so just that's my
1: he, when, when people say I have to go think about it, it's a nice way of saying no.
0: It is. We can see that, but people themselves don't see that. And then you sit in this area of never making decisions.
1: Well, that's true. um uh, Mostly people can't make decisions, one, because they don't know how. Mm-hmm. And and two because they've really never taught how to make difficult decisions. And two, the um you know their emotions. We're we're ninety eight percent emotional and only two percent rational. So we get caught up in the emotions. What if I'm wrong? What if you know? What if? How are people going to look at me? You know, you know, what do I do with all my childhood wounds that are now coming up and getting in my way of making decisions because I'm afraid or I'm anxious
0: mm-hmm.
1: or, or I'm I'm worthless. I can't. You know, I'm, I don't deserve this. All that stuff that, that many, 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 many people suffer from.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. I just, I want that to land for people, like 98% emotional, 2% rational.
1: Yep. It's- you can't even be rational without being emotional first. Mm-hmm. Think about it. How would you know to, of course, there's no definition of rationality either. Right. I teach a course called Decision Making Under Stress and Conflict at the Pepperdine School of Law. And the first thing I ask my students is, "Give me a definition of rationality," and they can't do it because there is no definition.
0: <laughs> so,
1: <let's laughs> and I don't care what discipline you go into. No, it really I love started, this. It started in economics with Morgenstern and Van Neumann back in 1948, but even their their definition was was ridiculous, and it was immediately proven to be incorrect. <laughs> and yet, the whole economic edifice is built on their formulation of utility theory and all this other stuff. And well, not that they re reframed it from centuries past, but the point being that emotions make us pay attention to our environment. Emotions tell us when we have a problem that has to be solved. Emotions tell us when we should be using what Kahneman calls system two thinking, which is a more rational, quantitative, qualitative, and analytical thinking. It's emotions that tell us that we've got to apply those skills. The skills themselves are just tools and they don't, alert us to problems you can't use rational thinking to see a problem all you can use rational thinking for is a way to solve a problem make a decision and without emotions we would not be able to decide anything and there's a famous case that antonio damasio talks about in another neuroscience of the, this guy phineas gage back in the 19th century was a railroad worker and he had a big spike that went through his brain and it it sheared off his part of his prefrontal cortex he couldn't he couldn't he didn't have any emotions, so he couldn't make any decisions. And he used to be, he went from being a stalwart member of the community to a complete drag on the community and totally impulsive and couldn't do anything because he, he didn't have any emotions.
0: Mm. So when we spend a lot of time judging our emotions, burying them, pushing them down, hiding, right. Right. avoiding them. Right. what? And Right. Listen, I mean, this is going to speak to pretty much anyone who's listening.
1: Right. What is that doing? We're buying into the myth of rationality. We've been lied to for 4,000 years. Going way back past the Greeks, we've been told that what separates human beings from other species of animals is rationality or reasoning. Mm -hmm. And this thought, this basic assumption of human nature has permeated theology and philosophy all the way through to the present moment. And as a result, we... Have the, we privilege rationality over emotions, and we are told from a very young age that emotions are bad. Emotions are evil. Emotions make you weak. Emotions make you vulnerable. Emotions are irrational, and we are emotionally invalidated. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're running around at three years old and we fall down and skin our knee, what are we told? Suck it up. Rub dirt in it. Be put on your girly girl pants. No, be a big boy. Big boys don't cry. We're told this from the time we're very small. And it is actually the most insidious, pervasive form of emotional abuse that exists because it's completely destroying an essential part of our brain's development. So anyways, that, so this perpetrates from generation to generation. Parents think, I got to toughen my kid up. You know, I, I can't have him cry. He's got to be tough. Uh, that, that's just so wrong. Mm-hmm. All the research shows that when you master your emotions and you have emotional competency. You, you are so much more likely to succeed in life. And in fact, the people that have the least emotional competency are the people that I work with in maximum security prisons. And once I teach them how to master their emotions, they completely transform almost overnight. It's amazing to watch. In fact, it's so powerful that of the, of the 20,000 inmates that I've worked with over the last 13 years in California prison, 6,000 have been released on parole. Not one has reoffended.
0: Oh, my gosh. So are you serious?
1: No, no, I am perfectly yeah. serious. That's because they've learned these skills. Mm-hmm. And yet we persist. Our whole educational edifice is based on the myth of rationality. Educational, the people in s- schools of education at the university level don't believe in emotions. Even though the core curriculum says there's got to be socio-emotional learning, schools don't invest any money in mm-hmm. proper development of their teachers. How can a teacher teach emotional competency if they're not emotionally competent themselves? Because they haven't been trained. Right. right. So we have this whole systemic cultural bias against emotions that leads us to to stuff emotion now we're talking about stuffing emotions That's here's the other problem so when we're small children we get assuming we're with a normal family and not too dysfunctional and believe me 98 percent of families are dysfunctional emotionally dysfunctional and lead to emotionally dysfunctional adults but babies in most in many families they're cuddled and they're they're and with they poop, oh, baby poop, let me clean your diaper, that sort of thing. So they're loved and taken care of for the most part. Mm-hmm. And that, that that lasts until about five or six years old. At about the time the child starts to develop agency and can start making decisions, starts to resist and starts to assert self-autonomy. That's when the child learns that it's not safe to be emotional. It's not safe to be around. It's not safe to express emotions. It's not safe to be emotions because every time I get emotional, I get punished. And that's when we start stuffing emotions down. And we start learning that we live in an emotionally unsafe. Our family is an emotionally unsafe place. Mm -hmm. And we start stuffing our emotions down. We're only allowed to show happy emotions. We're not allowed to show angry emotions or sad emotions or anxious emotions, fear emotions, only happy emotions. This is true for many, many families. Mm -hmm. By the time we get to teenagers, now you imagine teenagers trying to enter in their first relationship Intimate relationship with somebody other than their family, really, it's a train wreck. Yeah, yeah. And they bring all that baggage into the into adult life. We cover it up really well, you know. We oh, we're great at it. Castles and fortresses around us, so nobody can really see who we are. But inside, many, many, many people are are emotional wrecks.
0: Thank you for sharing all of that. Like it's it's actually really hitting because last week I just finished my master's in NLP and I'm doing my trainers. And I'm loving learning so much about this, but I ran a workshop last week called Mastering Your Emotions. And i it, it it's even the words. Can I tell you how many people sent me messages saying that's impossible?
1: It's not impossible. I can teach it to you in four weeks.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, I just...
1: You don't need to have years of therapy. You don't need to go on a mountain and meditate for 40 years. It's learning a very simple set of skills and then practicing them. It's that easy. I mean, I, if I can turn a murderer into a peacemaker, I can do this for anybody.
0: Well, and I think this is like, this is a piece I do want to dive into. Like, can we segue this into the work you do in the prison? Because I think it's fascinating and incredible for all of us to learn.
1: It, well.
0: I know this a big segue. Sorry. <laughs>
1: That's really big. <laughs> in, 2000, in 2005, I developed, I did, I discovered and developed the foundational skill of life. Mm-hmm. Called Epic, wait, wait, wait. In 2007. Neuroscientist, social psychologist, and neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman at UCLA published a brain scanning study showing why this idea of ethic labeling worked. In 2010, my colleague Laurel Coffer and I started the Prison of Peace Project in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world.
0: Women's yeah. prison, you said.
1: Women's prison. Yep, prison for women. At that time in 2010, all California prisons were 200 percent over their rated population. In, the, in this particular prison, there were. 3,800 women in a prison designed to hold less than 2,000. Mm. So fear overcrowding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and violence was everywhere. And we, got, we were asked to come in by a group of women that are part of what they call the networking group, who were all lifers and long-termers, to train them how to be mediators and peacemakers to, so they could stop the prison violence they were tired of. Mm-hmm. So... We're both very experienced trainers and teachers in mediation conflict resolution. Both of us teach at Pepperdine. at the Strauss Institute of Dispute Resolution. And so we put our heads together and developed a curriculum. And the foundational skill that we base the entire curriculum is on reflective listening, primarily affect labeling, learning how to listen to and reflect the emotions of another person. So we talk about mirroring, paraphrasing, core messaging, and affect labeling all these different levels of listening and, and how you use them and when you use them. And this is very, very different than the old Thomas Gordon active listening or the Marshall Rosenberg nonviolent communication. None of that stuff works. We only use stuff one that we have science to support what we're doing and we know it works from experience. So that's how it started. We're uh, in 30 prisons around the world. We're probably gonna triple that in the next two years. We During the pandemic, we, we filmed our entire curriculum, 40 hours of curriculum spread over a year. Uh, and that will be available to any institution, prison institution in the world. And as well as other people, so they can get the entire prison, of peace curriculum. And, and what we do in this curriculum is start with very fundamental skills, like how to listen. And then we start teaching leadership skills, how to run a peace circle. And then we teach them how to make a durable agreement. How do you make, get somebody to agree to something and make sure they're going to do it? How do we, um. How do we help people solve problems without giving advice how do we manage strong emotions how do we morally re-engage somebody who's morally disengaged and then how do we mediate between two people who have an intense conflict that they would rather kill each other in prison rather than sit down and talk how do you do that Mm -hmm. and that's what we teach it's a very structured rigorous curriculum um, that takes takes about a year to get somebody from nothing to becoming a certified mediator and then in the days when they were training trainers in prisons it would take three years to train somebody up to become a trainer
0: wow and so when you say training somebody to become a trainer was that somebody who was in prison to be able
1: our model is sustainability so we wanted to be able to make it sustainable that's why we only worked with lifers and Mm -hmm. Mm
0: long-termers
1: in fact at uh Valley State Prison for Women was repurposed into a men's prison in 2013, and many of the women went across the street to another women's prison called Central California Women's Facility, and Mm. Laurel was just up there. The woman who instigated all of this, who wrote the letter, died a couple of months ago, and so there was a memorial service for her last week. Mm. I couldn't make it, but Laurel did make it, and they're still there. They're still doing peace circles. We haven't been in the prison. We were barred from going into that prison. The warden hated us but they're still, the women are still doing work. And now we're gonna give them the entire uh, curriculum on film so that they continue the process. And this, our vision just has held true. And this is true in every prison we've worked in.
0: That is amazing. Thank you for sharing all that because it's just like, there's so much there and it's really powerful. And I look at it and think, it's not even just that you professionally changed careers. You have created, think like thinking of the impact and the reach and what you're doing is pouring into and impacting, affecting a proportion of our population that probably aren't given a lot of other chances. They don't get a lot of help. They didn't get a lot of help. I was trying to There's think a of, a of the best of, way
1: to say it. There are a lot of wounded, mm-hmm. wounded deeply mentally ill people in prison. The California yeah. prison population i think it sits right around around hundred thousand now i mean it's the largest mental illness institution in the world mm-hmm.
0: what a way like what is i've i've interviewed a number of people who have been in prison and they i can't remember the stats off the top of my head but i was always blown away by like what the repeat um offenders like it was so well, high
1: well it's high for a lot of reasons it's not as high now as it used to be but they are not given the kind of programming the kind of programming people need to rehabilitate and reenter is not always available. It's available in some prisons, but mm-hmm. not available in all prisons. The amount of money that the state in California invests in rehabilitation training is less than 1% of the total budget of the state. And what's interesting is that the, there have been a number of studies done for the state that showed that for every dollar they invest in rehabilitation, the state saves like $3,000. <laughs> I just want to invest heavily in rehabilitation. But because people are, you know, politicians get elected on fear and being tough on crime. The idea of rehabilitating inmates is not a popular subject. Um, some people reoffend because they can't adjust to the outside world. They'd rather be in prison. Mm-hmm. It's safer for them to be in prison. Than I was it just
0: going to say, I think it's safer. This is, I remember the words from one of my guests and he was just like, honestly, for some people, it's just safer. It's that's safer. Right. It's what they know. It's, it's, it's
1: predictable. Easy. You get three meals a day. You got a place to sleep, it's not comfortable, but it's, it's better than being out on the street. Mm-hmm.
0: And you don't have to think about it. Like I know he said, no, that's he, right. yeah, he is it, at this point. Um, If I go out, I had to think about like, where am I going to live? How am I going to get the job to live? Like, what's and for a lot of people, it was just easier to, yep, it's too much.
1: And And the system does not help them reorient themselves to the outside world. Wow. Now, today it's a little different, but that problem still persists.
0: Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I, of course that problem still persists and I think it will for a, like a potentially very long time, but this is such a massive change and shift in the work that you're doing that you're just giving people, you're giving people life skills and hope that, that, you know, they can change their life, but the life skills piece, I mean, you really literally described so many people in the experience that most of us had growing up.
1: Mm -hmm. That's exactly what we do. We're we're teaching them how to be peacemakers and mediators. But to do that, they have to have a set of about 20 or 30 different skills. They can even begin to learn how to mediate. And what's interesting about our program is that if you go to the outside and look at the mediation courses that are offered at universities and in community mediation centers, they average between, uh, I don't know, 10 and 40 hours over a one-week period Where our program is we although we we have about 40 hours of actual didactic instruction, it goes over a year with an intense amount of practice and write ups and journaling and a lot of homework involved so that it really embeds into the student. Mm -hmm. And that's not that's it's this is the it's a unique program. That's Uh,
0: incredible. Yeah, that is absolutely incredible. Thank you for sharing all of that. You are also an author, multi author.
1: Yes. Yep, four books.
0: Four. four books. Tell us about your books.
1: <laughs> First book. Since I was going through my brain explosion in my <laughs> master's degree program, I realized that I, I I had insights as to why people hated lawyers and why why the law was unsuited for dealing with many conflicts. So I wanted to write it, and I started teaching a class called Peacemaking and the Law, and and I also taught at that time the very first restorative justice class in the law in a US law school. The um, but you know, I didn't have a textbook. So if you don't have a textbook, you got to write one. And that's what I did. It was called practicing at the intersection of law and human conflict. And what I did is I looked at, I took it through a bunch of different disciplines. Like I was the first one to ever write about the neuropsychology of peace and conflict, looking at the neuroscience, how the brain processes peace and conflict, Mm -hmm. and looking at all these different disciplines and look at how the law looks at a problem and how a peacemaker looks at the problem and how different they are and why why peacemaking is oftentimes going to be more powerful at solving problems than the law. There are times when the law is extremely powerful and it's extremely efficient, but but the efficiency of the legal system is is bounded. It's, it's within very tight guardrails. But because we don't have any other systems in our society for dealing with conflict, everybody runs to their junkyard lawyers and files a lawsuit thinking that they're gonna get justice, not realizing there's no such thing as justice. Mm-hmm. And the court system definitely does not guarantee justice. It has an aspiration of procedural justice, but the idea of that being a fair result, you know I mean, that's that's kindergarten stuff. So I wrote the book. That was Peacemaking, practicing at the intersection of law and conflict. Then the next book I ended up co-writing with a colleague of mine called Sex, Politics, and Religion at the office. We were way ahead of our time. Teaching This book was to teach leaders how to manage diversity in the workplace and how to deal with a, uh, inevitable conflicts and what you had to do inside yourself as a leader to deal with diversity. That book came out in 2008, I think.
0: Oh, oh way,
1: way, way too early. <laughs> they, so
0: early you that need that book now. Oh, yeah, reading. I know.
1: Yeah, but, but, you know, and it's somewhat I think it's out of print. Uh, I've got I've got copies. I got a couple of cases of books, but not many uh way way ahead of the curve
0: yeah
1: it seems to be the problem with all of my writing us up always ahead of the curve <laughs> and then in 2013 well in 2012 10 11 12 somewhere right around the same time prisoner peace was getting going i read a book about um the camp david talks in the late 1990s and how bill clinton as president completely blew the thing up because he made so many rookie mediator mistakes this was between uh the Israelis and the Palestinians and they were close to a deal and he, and they and they got a typical pushback at the end and Clinton then just and his team just made so many mistakes so it got me curious Well, how, how well do people in international diplomatic relations how how well do they resolve conflicts and, and I, the statistics were stunning in on, in civil mediation um 90, somewhere in the high 90 percent of cases are settled in mediation. High 90 percent in international conflicts, which are different, granted, and more complex, granted, but still the statistics tell the tale. The, the of all the agencies and institutions around the world that do that have engaged in international conflict mediation, the best rate of success is the UN at 18 percent.
0: That's the best
1: that's the best the worst is like 1% or 2% and the average is 6% if as a professional mediator i only got a 6% success rate i'd be out of business in a month exactly and so then i started examining well why is this what is it just, is it because international conflicts are so different and complicated and political and the more i got into it the more i said no it's because the international Um, the the international diplomatic community are using 17th century tools to try to solve 21st century problems. Mm -hmm. They're basically completely ignorant of modern conflict resolution, mediation, peacemaking tools. And they have no clue about emotions. They have no clue about neuroscience. They're all, it's all based on rational thinking, the rational, I mean, they're all based on the Treaty of Westphalia, which basically was the treaty in Europe that said that the heads of state you know, they were al- analogizing to human. The, heads, the, the boundaries of a country are its body, the head of state, the thinking part is the head of state, and the heads of state talk to each other, and we're all rational actors. Totally wrong, <laughs> as we can tell from the war in Ukraine, right? Totally wrong. Exactly. Uh, that's just an, uh, one example of hundreds over the years of, of, of how emotions drive conflict. Mm-hmm. So I wrote my book, Elusive Peace, How Modern Diplomatic Strategies Could Better Resolve World Conflicts. And um, I got a lot of interesting channel communications from the diplomatic community, most of whom applauded me, but said that publicly they couldn't talk about it because I was, you know, it was heresy what I was talking about.
0: I was going to ask you if you got any feedback that was like, you know, nobody, I,
1: nobody I, commented, I
0: can't it. say it.
1: Yeah, nobody commented on it publicly yeah. because they couldn't, and I didn't get any negative reviews. A mm-hmm. lot of people really liked the book, but. Uh, I was I was telling the telling the emperor he had no clothes on. And these people are very egotistical and very prideful and think they're superior in every way. And for some lawyer turned peacemaker in California to tell him, hey, you know, (laughs) the numbers don't lie, that they could not accept that. No, then then that led to my fourth book. Uh, As a result of the prison work, I. I had a lot of my inmate students, incarcerated students asked me to write a book so that they could share it with their families because they were changing and, and, and growing so much. And so finally I said, OK, I'll do that. So I wrote De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. Um, the inter- interesting story about my fourth book is that I we my agent secured a deal with uh, Beyond Words, Adria, Simon and Schuster in just right around Thanksgiving of 2016. Turned in the manuscript right after. Right after that, I got a young editor who didn't know how to write. So what a pain! Every suggestion she made was a grammatical error. And I have to Google the error, send it to her, and say, "No, this is wrong. We're leaving it the way it is." Ultimately, they didn't change a word. Um, but but in February of 2017, my agent called me and said, "You're not going to believe this." And I said, "What?" He said, "Well, your manuscript made it to the president of Atria, which is a imprint of Simon and Schuster, and she." Every week, she reads the books that are coming in, reads the manuscripts, and she started reading your manuscript. Clear the calendar for the day. Read your read read your manuscript cover to cover, and pick up the phone. What's the earliest we can get this book out? And they, it broke all records. It was out in September of 2017. We didn't expect it to be published until 2018
0: or 2019.
1: Wow! We at that in seven months.
0: Wow, I can't wait to look into more of the books, but especially that because I just think of how practical that book is as far as de-escalate. Like
1: it's I, I teach, I'm all about the how. You can go to Harvard.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're great people there, Bob Manuka and Sheila Heena, all these people. They're really smart people, but they're going to tell you what to do and not how to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm all about teaching you the how. This is how you do it, step by step by step. And any person can learn these skills. I've taught, you know, you can imagine, I've taught murders in prisons and I've taught eight uh, analysts at the Congressional Budget Office in Washington, D.C. how to deescalate members of Congress.
0: Is it working?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, they-
0: or the, Yeah, work. I could just, it's, in some they're ways- they're neutral
1: could... and impartial and they, got, they, they deliver reports and the, you know, the reports are neutral, but it always is gonna goose somebody, right? And so they're oh. get, constantly getting pushed back, And so now they now they recognize it's an emotional reaction. And this is how you deal with the emotions. And this is how you maintain control over the situation.
0: Well, I'm sorry for my little smart ass joke there, but I just look at it and go. I think like some of the I'm, I almost feel like some of the prisoners would be even more open to learning some of these skills and being able to put them into practice.
1: Well, they are because one. <laughs> I mean after we teach our first cohort in any given prison we have a waiting list of usually 800 900 people. I mean they they learn very quickly. This is one of the most powerful programs in the prison. And so so and what they learn is that they're learning foundational skills. The board the the, the board of parole hearings loves Prison of Peace. Anybody who's gone through Prison of Peace they see as a, a possible candidate for release assuming their suitability and all the other conditions. And but if you haven't done the work they know the the commissioners know enough about the project that they can, they can cross-examine the inmate pretty deeply about what they've learned to find out, did this really that's take...
0: A, that's awesome.
1: And so they, they have to learn, they got to walk through talk. And you can only do this stuff if you're actually practicing it and doing it. Otherwise, it, it comes off as completely inauthentic. Um, and, and they've watched, you know, the inmates have all learned, the students, incarcerated students, have all learned how these skills have not only changed their lives inside of prison mm-hmm. by reducing violence, but also... Their relationships with their families outside of prison.
0: Yeah, I just, I think everything you're saying is so incredibly powerful. And I think it is, they're just really good skills that people could like need and can learn, like right. we can learn.
1: You can learn this stuff. It's not hard. It's a little scary in the beginning because I'm asking you to pay attention to something you've been told is evil for a long time, emotions, mm-hmm. but it is not, it is not difficult to learn.
0: Yeah, I just I I'm so fascinated too by the de-escalate because, I mean, we went through a, some really difficult times with our kids when they were teens, and even to this day, like we have done incredible work together. It's it's so much change has happened, but it's interesting because people will say like, "What's the number one thing that you learned?" And I'm like, "If you could learn how to say less and listen more sooner, that skill will take you so far." No problem solved. Yeah, it's it's honestly. Yeah, if you're going to fight to be right every single time you're having a conversation, you're going to keep going in circles.
1: That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I see that a lot.
0: I'm sure you do. I'm sure I get, you do.
1: I get called into mediate. I just finished a really tough mediation between a divorced couple whose son com- tried to commit suicide two weeks ago, Oh. and they couldn't decide. They were they were describing exactly what you saw. They were, it was always, a, every conversation is a fight to be right. Yep. Not what's good for him. No. I finally got them squared away and they're going to do the right thing, but they're still fighting. Even though we've come down to you know, a plan for the kid. Um, They still.
0: But they, they have to see. And in this case, like, again, I could just own this from my point is it is when you're going through challenges like that, you think it's them that have to change, but essentially it's a dynamic. It affects everybody. Everybody has to change.
1: That's right. Yeah. Um, so. You know you well, i teach them the skills i coach them in the skills it's not enough there's not enough time usually for, for it to really bake in mm-hmm. but you know you we we can get i get results and you know the, the mother last night thanked me profusely saying you saved saved our son i said no i didn't say your son you saved your son i just helped you get there that's beautiful. and and you know that's that's the work of the peacemaker
0: Mm-hmm. that I can just see how those peacemaker skills are They're for everywhere. Like everyone can benefit from this work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm working in schools, teaching school administrators and teachers how to deescalate angry parents and students.
0: Oh, I can't even, that's where my brain went to immediately was schools like schools and seeing how beneficial this would be in school it environments.
1: radically changes a school campus when, when you've got a cadre of, Administrators and teachers that understand that they are dealing with emotions here, not with rationality, mm-hmm. they can then approach the children and the parents from a place of emotions rather than rational thinking and listen rather than problem solve or defend. It changes the dynamic completely,
0: mm-hmm. which always then changes the results and the energy that's expended in the
1: meantime. I, like that's just solve, I I even you know, when I teach parents, <laughs> I said, "How long do you argue with your?" Five-year-old, or six-year-old, or seven-year-old. Whoa, you know, Sometimes it's like fifteen minutes. I said, well, "What if you could cut that argument down to ninety seconds?"
0: Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah, it's huge. Listen, mm-hmm. it's not
1: about my ego. It's about me validating what you're feeling.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, the, and as long as I can validate your 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 emotions, I'm not going to get triggered, and I'm going to calm you down, and I'm going to we're going to solve the problem fast. Mm-hmm. That's the way our brains are hardwired.
0: Yeah, I just I think I think it's incredibly powerful. I really do. I cannot wait to dive into more of of the work that you're doing and read more about it because I just think it's I think it's needed for so many people can benefit from this. And as I look at like to me, your backstory, you have walked so much of these, like this is it's 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 amazing. Honestly, it's amazing. Can you tell us um what? life was like for you when you were first born and how, what did you, what changes did you make or how did you see your situation differently? Because you could have a very different life right now.
1: Yeah. I could be really miserable right now. Yep. Mm-hmm. I could be wealthy, but miserable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up, uh, I was born with a lot of disability. I was born partially deaf, almost blind, crippled, could do club feet, could not walk until I was three years old after four surgeries. Um left-handed bad teeth. <laughs> you know, just check, go down the list of bad things that can happen to you as a kid. And this is in 1950 when nobody had a way of figuring out what to do with a disabled child who wasn't so dysfunctional that they had to be put away, which is what happened in those days. It did. But also I could I would I I couldn't run very well. I never learned how to skip. Uh and I mean, and then so now I'm not doing well in school in the first couple of grade levels until in the fourth grade, a nurse gets the broad idea to test my vision. And they find out my vision is 2400. I get these big, thick Coke lens classes, right? Yeah. Everything's a buzzkill for the girls and social. And there's nothing I have. It's all awful. <laughs> it's uh,
0: my definitely. parents
1: are My parents are doing the best they can, but they, they believe in the old toughen up, you know, the yeah. Dr. Yeah. Spock, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. And so they were very, very tough and rigorous. And I needed I needed a lot of emotional support. I got none zero, and mm-hmm. so it was at about six or seven years old that I got into this mindset of being a rock, being a stoic, and I'm all into myself, and you know I had all this emotional wounding that everybody suffers from. Yeah. So, so I got through high school. I didn't have a good growing up period at all. It wasn't didn't have a good experience. It was just one shameful moment after another. Um, but I was very bright, and so I. Got accepted to Dartmouth College and went to Dartmouth Ivy League and came back to California. And in those days, if you didn't go to med school, you went to law school out of Ivy League. So that's what I did. And my personality type was probably well suited to law school. I'm Very bright and also very arrogant. And so because it was the arrogance that was covering up all of the wounding. So I did that for 22 years and uh, made a lot of money and a fair amount of money. And won a lot of big lawsuits and developed a ferocious reputation. And But it wasn't serving me. And like I said, it was the story of the martial arts moving me into Tai Chi, which moved me into spiritual practices, into energy healing and stuff like that. All culminated with this decision to leave the practice of law in 2000. Well, just because I loved the practice of law didn't mean that I was going to be an effective mediator and peacemaker. I still right. So I had years of work that i was doing on myself and i wouldn't i would say that it wasn't really until i turned 60 when we started the prison of peace project that i really started growing up and changing and becoming more self-aware and becoming the person that i keep growing today where and it was the prison work i think that really was the last part of that growth process Mm -hmm. walk into a women this women's prison And here are 15 women in front of me from 30 years old to 65 years old, black, white, Chicano, Chicana, Latinx, you you name it, Pacific Islander, Asian, every diversity, age group, intelligence level you can imagine, and I'm evil incarnate. Every bad thing that happened to those women happened to them because of a guy like me. Big, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, male lawyer, right? You know, that was the process that, because all these processes together over a period of time shifted me, until until I c- could get out of all that, mm-hmm. and I got out of it, and I've never been happier. I you mean, know, I have an amazing wife, and I don't make a lot of money, but I don't need a lot of money. So, I've learned that money doesn't mean diddly really. So I live in ten acres in this beautiful part of California. I can zoom anywhere, mm-hmm. talk to all kinds of different people at all kinds of different levels, and you know, it's
0: great. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Seriously, I I think of it. And I think um, so many people and myself, I've said these words. So many people also think, you know, it's too late in my life. Like, it's uh, I know, I know. I'm just, <laughs> it's like, or I'm too late getting started, or I'm too, you know, I, I hear it a lot.
1: I know. But let me just say, I took up jazz violin 13 years ago. <laughs> you did. I was 63, no, and uh, yeah, 61, 62 years old. Yeah. I played, played fiddle for a long time, Irish and American fiddle, but I want to learn jazz violin. So mm-hmm. I found a teacher. I've been studying jazz violin. It's not too late. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not. You are an airplane and a helicopter pilot as well?
1: Yeah, I'm a, I'm out of currency, but yeah, I, I fly airplane. I have an airplane and flown, I got a helicopter rating and twin-engine, multi-engine instrument-rated private pilot. Wow. I did that because I hated driving. And and so Living where I live in kind of rural California, I'd have to get to the urban areas and it's a three or four hour drive and a 45 minute flight. So I could do, I could get in an airplane and fly over and do court appearances and be back by lunchtime.
0: That's amazing.
1: It would be otherwise an all day trip. So that's how I got into it. Yeah. But I haven't been flying. I've been flying in a while. I haven't had a need to. Mm-hmm. So.
0: No, Zoom, right? We're in this. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, I can just Zoom everywhere. And, and 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 in my professional business as a mediator, you know, everything's gone online. Yeah. I know guys guys in L.A., colleagues of mine in L.A. and San Francisco, they used to have these super expensive offices and conference setups. <laughs> gone. They all work out of their home now. Yeah. Nope, nobody, very few people want to do in-person mediation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're going to be back on. There's very little in-person work.
0: Mm-hmm. no there's been so many changes i was one of the questions i was going to ask you is like how do you look back at that um in 1980? i think you said 1984 when you finished your secondary black belt was that when you was that when you finished and his word that's,
1: that's when i started he when started 1990 when he awarded me the second degree and said you're fired <laughs> he didn't really say you're fired but he said
0: no but on. like how do you reflect on that now when you look at it like that was the uh, best was, thing that uh, ever happened
1: it was really uh profoundly important insight that he had mm-hmm. and um, he was a great martial artist phenomenal martial artist, and a phenomenal teacher but he had a, he had a lot of flaws too mm-hmm. he had the insight to see that my path was different than the path of moving up through the ranks to black belts that i didn't need to l- learn how to be more violent i had to learn more subtle skills
0: and that's like, that is just, there's, I think there's so much symbolism in that message alone, like not just in martial arts that can be taken into so many areas of our life that I think it's a really powerful sentence, a really powerful statement. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, what is next for you then?
1: Well, I've got a new project going on that I'm really excited about developing, and that is, um, uh, I'm offering to facilitate. Everybody has a difficult conversation they're avoiding, right?
0: Everybody. Everybody. Everybody, guaranteed.
1: It, guaranteed. I will facilitate for one hour. I will facilitate that difficult conversation between you and the other person. We'll do it on Zoom. And here's the here's the catch. We're going to live stream it to YouTube. Ooh. Now, if you don't, don't want to live stream it to YouTube, you can, you can pay me $1,500 to do it. And I'll be happy to do it. But mm-hmm. the reason that I want to live stream it is because what i found over the years is is that when people can see that it's real people with real problems and a really difficult conversation, they can see that it's possible to have that difficult conversation peacefully and civilly and respectfully, Mm -hmm. and and get the release of all the stress and anxiety that's built up around not having the conversation, we're gonna change the world. Because just by example, we can show people what this looks like. And YouTube is a perfect place for this to be demonstrated.
0: This is a perfect place for it to be demonstrated. And I have to believe that if you're going to get people who are going to say yes, like put their hands up, say yes, and do this, they want to create change. Like they, they do want change. Or well, they're
1: little, Or they're a little voyeuristic and they like the idea of a sort of a fake reality TV kind of, just, thing, you know, I mean, cause that's what it is. Yeah. So, so, so that's the deal. And, and, uh, I've done a number, I haven't streamed any yet. Uh, but I've done two or three really, r- really difficult conversations What at first appeared to be at this level really was much, much more intense because I mean, we're talking rape and sexual abuse and I mean, some really heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. So but that's, you know, it's all in a day's work. So that's, amazing. But that's really cool that I'm doing that project. I'm reaching out to school districts. I really believe in teaching schools these skills. I, I, I was in September. I was in Indiana training um, thirty or forty Indiana school principals these skills, and the results were phenomenal. I mean, they r- reported back that everything changed for them once they, especially with dealing with the kids. Mm-hmm. I just talked with a student of mine last night or night before last. Um, he teaches beginning Spanish in Maine to middle school people, middle school students five fifth, fifth, eighth grade. And he says the he just told a story of a really aggressive, hostile, rude seventh grader, he ethic mm-hmm. labeled the student for 15 minutes. Then the next week, the student came in completely changed, totally loyal, totally well-behaved, excited, engaged in class, completely different human being, <laughs> just because this teacher took 15 minutes to listen, this kid into existence
0: that is really powerful. And if you think about, I just even think of that age bracket, like that changes that kid's life. That's right. Yeah.
1: I told I told Danny, I said, you know, when this kid is asked 40 years from now who the most influential teacher yeah. was like, it's gonna be you. Yeah. Mr. Mr. Yansison back when I was in fourth grade or fifth grade or whatever it was.
0: Yeah, we all have those teachers or experiences, but I think of like I do think of that, and that is transformational for that kid at that age specifically yeah oh i i want to ask you another question um because there's so many things coming up here but the thing that spoke to me before and i just want you to be able to share this with everyone is the difference between like emotional intelligence and emotional competence
1: yeah (laughs) so emotional intelligence is a form of social intelligence and the term was actually coined by um Mayor and Salovey Silo- uh, back in, ni- in the early 1990s. And one of them was at Yale, one of them was at the University of New Hampshire, and they're psychologists studying this idea of intelligence. And they describe it as a set of attributes and skills, and they're all kinds of country was it trait-based, it's skill-based, whatever. Well, then Daniel Goleman, who is a, has a PhD, but he was a New York Times science writer, picked up on their writing and wrote a book that came out in 1995, I think, which exploded, it was a big New York Times bestseller. And he has built a multi million dollar industry around emotional intelligence. And now everybody and their uncle talks about emotional intelligence, how to increase your emotional intelligence, but they're completely distorting what the what the scholars are saying, because you can't learn emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence is a measure of certain skills, it's really a measure of your emotional competency. So it would be like me, Marsha, saying, okay, Marsha, I'm going to teach you how to raise your IQ. You, know, <laughs> you can't do that, right? Because the no. test, Stanford-Binet test, right? Mm-hmm. Intelligent test. But I can teach you three basic skills that will allow you to score high on emotional intelligence assessments. And those three skills are developing emotional self-awareness. What am I feeling right now in the moment? Mm-hmm. Emotional self-regulation. How do I... I'm not gonna control my emotions, but how do I behave against emotions that are pushing me to do something reactive? Mm -hmm. And then empathy, cognitive and affective empathy. And empathy is a skill, we are not born with empathy. Empathy is a skill that has to be learned and trained. And the way that I teach empathy, cognitive empathy, is through the process of affect labeling. It turns out that when you learn how to affect label, The other two aspects of emotional competency develop automatically. You develop your own emotional awareness and you develop emotional self-regulation automatically. And that's why I say I can take somebody in four to six weeks and and teach them emotional competency so they score significantly higher on emotional intelligence assessments. And if they continue to practice, they just get better and better and better at it. And their life just continues to change for the better. You just have to learn one skill and it changes everything. It's foundational.
0: Yeah, that's huge because in the online space, I'm gonna say as like coach, trainer, everything I see, there's so much talk about like emotional intelligence. Like there's your course on emotional. Talk. I'm like, but like, what are you teaching? I don't even know what that is.
1: Well, okay, yeah. So so here are some criteria to look at. One, do they define emotions? Do they have a good bio biophysiological definition of what an emotion is? The answer for all of them is no. Mm-hmm. Two, are the coaches, the trainers themselves, are they emotionally competent? And how and how do they demonstrate that? Mm-hmm. Three, if they are teaching, they're claiming to raise emotional intelligence, then, then are they teaching you the what or are they teaching you the how?
0: Yeah, probably the what.
1: Most of, almost all. I haven't seen anybody teach the how except for mm-hmm.
0: me.
1: It's all about the what.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's all based on rational thinking, not our emotional, our emotional essence. So it's all most of it. In fact, in my opinion, it's all garbage. You waste your money taking these courses on emotional intelligence. You, You might get a few ideas, but just getting an idea doesn't develop your emotional competency.
0: No, it doesn't. Thank you for saying that because that's been one that's caught my eye a lot, especially this last year. I see so much of it. And it's, it's just been interesting because I also think, there are skills that you learn because you're put into situations to learn like you're put into, it's not, I can't read that. Like I can't just read that. I have to be able to put it and implement it into a conversation, into an experience in order for it to land as a skill that I'm learning.
1: Right. So the way that, the way this has to be taught, the way I teach this is, is is first of all, we lay down a theoretical foundation Mm -hmm. describing the myth of rationality, the, biophysiological scientific nature of emotions. We're not born with emotions, we, do, we have to construct them. We're born with affect, not with emotions. So, and then this is all science that most people completely don't know anything about. And, and, and what are the implications of, of that, the fact that we have to create, that emotions are constructed, not, they're not innate. Um, and then we get into affect labeling and how, what is affect labeling and how does it work? And then from there, it's practice. You have to practice, you have to practice these skills. And in the beginning, it's very weird to say to somebody, to say to you, Marcia, for example, Marcia, you're really angry. You're really frustrated. You're upset. You feel completely disrespected. You feel ignored. You're unappreciated. You're not being heard. You feel no support. Mm-hmm. And it's really making you anxious and worried. And you're sad. And you're a little embarrassed. And you're upset. And you know something right now? You feel completely abandoned and unloved and unworthy. All <laughs> things just really pisses you off. Mm-hmm. And you're not any of those things, but what do you, I can tell about I could
0: feel it. I could feel those words though, like that, that the way you spoke and the way it addresses feelings. I mean, I could feel it. Like I could definitely feel that.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Now you take somebody who's really upset and you do that mm-hmm. and their brain has to react to it. They, they, there's no choice. This is all unconscious. Mm-hmm. And so I can just reflect your feelings, but it's very weird in the beginning to tell you what you're feeling because we are so biased against emotions. That the idea of me telling you what you're feeling is weird. And to use a you statement, not an I statement, that old Thomas Gordon stuff that doesn't mm-hmm. work. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, and and to go into that kind of vulnerability and authenticity is in the beginning, is a little scary for people. It is scary. But, but they once the beauty of this practice is that once you start doing it, and we practice in very low risk situations, mm-hmm. and in my training, we're doing a lot of role-playing. So people really get the sense of what's going on. Then they practice in low-risk situations, very simple situations. They start to see the results. They see how powerful it is. And then it becomes a self-affirming practice. You want to do it more and more and more and more. Because every time you do it, you're getting enormous gratitude from the person that you're listening to. Rather than getting the pushback, who the heck do you think you are? My psychologist, you know, something like that. And occasionally you get that pushback. But I, I, when, you, when you get that pushback, it's because you're too good. You've, you're like a superhero. you penetrated all their walls of safety, and you're looking at who they really are, and it scares, scares them deeply. It scares
0: them. Exactly.
1: So they're going to push back. It just means you've got to back off, be a little, be a little more nuanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of the time, people are deeply grateful. And when they show that gratitude, you feel good about yourself. Wow, I did it. That's amazing. Or when you're dealing with a child or a student, or you're dealing with a coworker, or you're dealing with a client, and you get them calmed down, within 90 seconds, you say, wow, that is amazing. I didn't believe this would really work. I thought Noah was crazy. But no, it really works. Now, all of a sudden, they're motivated to develop the skill.
0: Yeah, that is so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, And I'm going to ask a question just because I want some um, clarification for everybody who's listening. What does affect labeling mean?
1: The technical term, and basically it's a three-step process. Mm-hmm. We are confronted with somebody who's angry or upset or even happy. But let's just take anger. You ignore the words. You, you totally ignore the words. I mean, that's just white noise. You sit in silence and allow the emotions that this other person is experiencing to bubble into your consciousness. Our brains are hardwired for doing this. So it's it's effortless to read the emotions of another person. And then we reflect back the emotions with a simple use you statement. You're angry. You're frustrated. Okay. Three-step process. Very simple. And we don't wait until we're listening, not in conversation. So that means that we can label emotions right away. So as soon as you feel some emotions coming up, you immediately label them. You don't wait till the end because you'll miss them all. So you've got to be, be learn how to, quote, quote, interrupt, but you're really not interrupting because the listener, the speaker never feels like you're interrupting when you're labeling emotions. Um, and 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 you label emotions until four things happen. You get a nodding of the head, you get, yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I feel. You get a dropping of the shoulders and you get an exhalation, sigh of relief, involuntary relaxation response. And then you've deescalated, and then you can move on to problem solving if that's what you need to do.
0: Mm, thank That's you for ethic
1: labeling. That's third-party ethic labeling. The other kind of ethic labeling is self-ethic labeling. You do the same thing to yourself. I'm really angry. I'm frustrated. I'm upset. I'm pissed off. I don't feel supported. I don't feel appreciated. It has the same effect on your brain. So you can do it to somebody else, or you can do it to yourself. And if you do it to yourself, now you're engaging in emotional self-regulation, one of the three parts of emotional competency: emotional self-awareness and emotional self-regulation.
0: Wow, my mind is literally blown right now. I am loving, like loving this conversation. This is it's very powerful work, and this is definitely things that I can see can benefit and impact so many people. You have a an ebook that is going to be in the show notes. Is that correct? Yes.
1: Yeah, I don't remember what I I don't remember what I say because it was a while ago.
0: <laughs> I know, I know, I know. What does
1: the it's, ebook say? Did it, I give you a link too?
0: Yeah, you did. Yeah.
1: Good. So I don't I don't remember what the link is. It should be it, a ducknull.co slash something.
0: Slash Marsha Van W. So it's here
1: we go. Perfect. There we go. Yeah. Um all right. On that page, if you go to that link, if you see it in the shoutouts, mm-hmm. you're gonna get um five things are available to you. Number one, if you want to do a, a difficult conversation with me, there's a link to that page on my website so you can learn more about that. Mm-hmm. Number two, you can get a free ebook that describes all of this stuff that we've been talking about. You can buy my fourth book de-escalate. You can buy my uh, de-escalate video training. And then if you really want to go deep, you can buy my, my two levels of emotional competency training.
0: Mm, thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, I will make sure all of that is available there because this work is, I, I mean, everyone can benefit from this work. Literally everyone.
1: Well, I agree. My belief is if I could get even 10% of the people mm-hmm. in our nation doing this, Many of the problems that we have around political polarization, around cultural disputes, um, would go away because we could we would really start validating each other. We don't have to agree with each other. No, we to do is validate each other, mm-hmm. and that's something that people don't get. There's a big difference between validating feelings and agreeing with somebody's differing values and beliefs, and and the the first is necessary. The second is unnecessary.
0: Can you repeat that piece again? Because yeah.
1: there's.
0: <laughs> There's something I want to add to this. Go ahead.
1: So I believe that if we can train 10 percent of the people in our country how to listen to emotions, we can solve a lot of our problems. Mm-hmm. What people don't understand is that everybody wants to be emotionally validated. They want their they want to feel heard and listened to and respected. But just because I hear you and respect you and validate you doesn't mean that I agree with you. You could have politically. Compl- Abhorrent beliefs to me. But if I validate you as a human being, we can be in peace with each other, even though we might sharply disagree about many subjects. We'll actually find that we have many more things in common between the two of us than we have pushing us apart. Mm-hmm. And it all comes down to validating emotions and listening each other into existence.
0: I feel like you just summed up majority of the conflicts we've gone through in the last couple of years, right um, That sentence alone.
1: That's right. Yeah. What we have is that we have politicians who are trying to protect their power, position, and privilege, and they're doing exact, They're doing the exact opposite. They're pushing people apart with fear and anger in order to raise money and create a base that they can then use to get reelected. As opposed to, there's nobody in, in our political system that's bringing people together.
0: No, and I, I'm going to... Yeah, I'm going to go here because this is I mean, I'm in Canada, like if there, there, we have never seen the division like you we got it s-
1: up there too. Yep. Yeah,
0: we do. We do 100%. We have never seen the division like we have seen in the last couple of years ever like it's it's unreal how much and not even just who agrees with who. It's like the division has been in families. It's like broken. Right. It's broken families apart, and it's been so sad to see.
1: And, and it's all it's all been done because politi- politicians. I'm putting it right in the leadership. They benefit from that. Nobody yeah. else yep. benefits, but they benefit from it. From a fractured society, yep. a fractured culture, and we can. And so we, the people, have the tools now to fix that mm-hmm. if we want to. We don't have to listen to these people. We can learn how to validate each other. We can still sharply disagree, but we can do it from a place of peace, not from a place of hatred and conflict right? And, and anxiety. And it's not that difficult.
0: Incredible conversation. Thank you for everything that you have shared, like so much value for everyone here. And I can't wait to dive into more of your information. There's going to be lots of links in the show notes, for people to connect, follow, and find you. What's the easiest way for people to connect and learn more about your work then? The link in the show notes, or is there anything else?
1: Uh, well, my email address is Doug at DougKnoll.com. I'm a solo practitioner. I don't have any staff. I don't have virtu- I don't even have a virtual assistant. I just do everything myself. So wow. re- I answer all, all my own emails. Um, yeah. My basic website is DougKnoll.com. So, so from there, you can go in when you land on the homepage, you'll, I ask a bunch of questions just click on the, where you want to go. And it'll take you to the part of the website that will answer your questions. And you can always reach out to me and I'm happy to talk. I'm happy to chat with people on zoom. I'm happy to correspond by email. If people are interested and, you know, people want a difficult conversation, I can direct them there, you know, whatever they want, whatever they need. They want to have me coach them or train, train their groups. I do a lot of training, uh, teaching institutions and companies, and I just got a call from the NIH that wanted to come in and do a bunch of de-escalation training in the NIH, National Institutes of Health here in the U.S. So I do this stuff all the time, and I'm just happy to talk to anybody that's really interested in learning more about this.
0: Well, I thank you for that. And for anybody who is listening and is interested, I mean, I heard this quote a long time ago, but it's the quality of your life is directly proportionate to the difficult conversations you're willing to have. And <laughs> I a, do you like that one?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm working in Canada too. Late in January, I'm doing a training for the your, the Canadian Veterans Administration Ombuds Office, teaching all the ombuds people who deal with veterans having problems with the Department of Veterans Affairs in Canada how to de escalate them and problem solve. So <laughs> I work in Canada too.
0: I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, I have loved this conversation with you, Doug. Honestly, this has just been so valuable. I have one more question for you. What lesson in life are you most grateful for?
1: Wow. Uh, there's so many. I'm sure there is. I think I think what I'm most grateful for, I'm not sure. Me, yeah, I guess it's a lesson. I'm really grateful that I met the woman that I married to. Mm. And that she had the patience and skill to help me grow from somebody who was very dysfunctional emotionally to somebody who's functional. And that's probably been my greatest blessing. And that happened late, later in life. I mean, it was my, I'm in my second marriage, and this woman is amazing.
0: That's, that's... She's an
1: amazing amazing practitioner in her own right. I mean, been mm-hmm. well on the web, so...
0: Mm, Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And we thank her too, because I think this has helped you to do and step into all the work that you're doing. Right. Right. Yeah. Incredible. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your
1: life.